We are in a sermon series. What does a follower of Jesus look like? Exploring and discussing together what it means to be disciples of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. And the children read our scripture this morning. They did a great job sharing with us God's word that is the text for this morning's sermon, Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Before I bring the message, I'd like for us to bow and just be in God's presence for a time of quiet, time of meditation, to practice simply being in God's presence, to process pain in our lives, to confess sin, to offer thanks, to bring before God the names of people we're concerned about, or just to be silent and to soak up God's presence. Lord, you teach us in your word to be still and know that you are God. And when we cease the chatter, sometimes we're able to hear you speak in clearer ways. We thank you for the gift of silence. We thank you for the gift of worship. We come before you acknowledging our sin and brokenness this morning, uh, our struggles, our sins, our failures, and all the ways that we need to be vulnerable in front of you to acknowledge our need that we might be cleansed, that we might be empowered by your indwelling Holy Spirit, that we might be equipped for service and witness today and in the coming week. We pray that you would mightily bless this church and all the churches of our community. Pour out your Spirit upon us as we live the witness of the risen Christ, as we live discipleship. We pray today for those in our congregation who are hurting, those who are ill, those who have received a very, very difficult diagnosis. We pray your special hand of blessing and your special deep well of grace to supply for them everything they need. We pray for those grieving the loss of loved ones, grieving the ending of relationships, grieving job loss, grieving uh, transition and loss of status. We pray that you would minister because, Lord, often in our times of grief, we're more open to you, to what you have to teach us. We pray your blessings on our youth and our children as they live the gospel and as they show us the way and as they face temptations and challenges and as they negotiate growth points in their lives. We remember to pray for our nation and for the world, for peace to rule for your protection for our military personnel and our thanksgiving for all of the liberties that we enjoy. We offer you, Lord, our lives in a fresh way and and you've blessed us richly in this worship already. So we want to be intentionally in your presence now and to invite you to speak clearly to us, rummage around in our dusty hearts and do a fresh work And show us the way of discipleship. Guide us into your truth. Give us listening and speaking grace. This is our prayer together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so someone is probably going to say or has already said, uh, Doyle quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer too much from the pulpit. 
And here's my answer. So sue me. (laughs) Who, besides Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the writers of the Bible, who has more to teach us about listening and about following Jesus, really following him, really being disciples? Uh, We have so much to learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So here's the quote of the day or the quote of the week or whatever sarcastically you want to say. I hope that's showing up okay uh, on the screen. I don't know if you can dim the lights a little bit so that people can see that a little better. Uh, This is Bonhoeffer from one of his books. I detect a rebellion against all things religious is growing in me. He's being very honest. Often it amounts to an instinctive horror. I'm not religious by nature. Authenticity, life, mercy mean a great deal to me. It is just their religious manifestations which are so unattractive. Now, I want, I want to leave that on the screen for just a moment, and I want you to digest what he just said. He's not religious by nature, and there are some phrases and some attitudes that turn him off uh, that he has an instinctive horror against, a reaction to. But authenticity in life and mercy are very precious to him. It's just their religious manifestations which are so unattractive. You got to think about that a moment. Really think about it. Because what we're dealing with this morning in the story that the children read from Luke 18 is a story about how the unattractive parts of religion, the unattractive parts of, of, uh, of church, actually hinder discipleship. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, But it's possible that instead of helping people follow Jesus, at times the church can actually hinder people from following Jesus because of some of those unattractive aspects that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer referenced and talked about and we've been talking about this week. Okay, so to meet the two main characters in Jesus' story... The first character is a Pharisee, and before we judge him negatively, the word Pharisee has a negative connotation uh, for some people, Uh, and he ends up being sort of the villain in the story, but just taken at face value, he's not all bad. Pharisees were people who loved God. They they sought God's will. They they were very scrupulous in, in trying to be intentional about following God's will. In fact, this Pharisee acknowledges that he fasts twice a week, and he tithes on all of his income. By Jewish law, you did not have to tithe on all of your income. So he actually is not only a Pharisee, but he's one who goes the extra mile in spiritual discipline. So there are some things to admire about him. We'll get to the negatives in a moment. By contrast to the Pharisee, there is this unchurched guy called the tax collector. Now, the tax collector ends up being the hero of the story, but don't rush there too quickly because uh, he... uh, was kind of a nasty guy. In fact, uh, in the setting of his day, he was a sleazebag. He was. He was a sleazebag. He collected taxes for the oppressive, occupying, cruel Roman regime. Imagine your country being overrun by an adversary and cruelly treated. Imagine being someone who collects taxes for that oppressive, occupying government. But he not only collected taxes 
for the regime of Rome, he gouged people because he had a deal with Rome that said that you collect X amount of money for us and anything you get above that is gravy you can keep. And so he would extort money from people and he probably became very well off. So what you have is a man who is religiously impure, he's politically a traitor, and he is financially a cheat and an oppressor of the poor and the common people. You get the picture. Not a nice guy. So we see a quick snapshot of their background and some assumptions about who they were as the story started. But we really learn more about them when we hear each person confess in church. They were both in church. That's a plus. The Pharisee begins his worship and his prayer by saying, God, I just want to thank you today that I'm not like other people. How's that for a prayer? I want to thank you that I'm not like the thieves and the rogues and the adulterers and all those, all those dirty people, especially like that dirty person over there, that, that tax gatherer. I want to thank you that I'm not like it. So we have several problems already. Luke says Jesus told this story because of people who trust themselves and who have, dis, have, have uh, contempt or who despise other people. So we got two main problems with this Pharisee's uh, prayer. First of all, the only time he feels good about himself is when he's pushing off against someone else's failure or sin or brokenness. Did you know that's the main problem with gossip and the main problem with a judgmental spirit and hypercriticism of other people? The problem with those sins is that The only time we feel good about ourselves is when we're pushing off against the failure and the sin and the brokenness of other people. But it's not just that. When he starts praying, he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. I'm not like that person standing over there. The word I appears, the personal pronoun I appears over and over and over again. Wow. Someone has said, this is how you can describe this Pharisee's prayer, or this this Pharisee's worship, actually. Here's his worship. Glance at God, stare at myself. Is that how some of us worship? We glance at God, but we stare at ourselves. We glance at God, but we congratulate ourselves. And I think... If I understand scripture right, worship's supposed to be the other way around. We glance at ourselves and stare at God. So there's his worship experience. We learn a lot about him. And then there's the tax gatherer. This is where he becomes the hero in Jesus' story. Jesus always liked to flip things around, surprise and startle. First of all, it's not what he says, it's what he does. And I would do it except it would probably hit my microphone and make a loud whacking sound. He beat his breast. That's a Jewish ceremonial act of contrition, humiliation, sin confession. To this day, many Jews on Yom Kippur, the National Day of Atonement, during Yom Kippur, they beat their breasts an acknowledgement of contrition and repentance for sins. He beat his breast. And then he said, God, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice, he did not simply say that he had sinned. That's a practice or an outgrowth or a byproduct. He didn't just say he had sinned. He described himself as a sinner. That's a condition of heart. That is a status. That is a self-description. Not just that he'd sinned, but he is a sinner. And he cries out for mercy. And we begin to realize that this is a holy moment. That in church that day, God was showing up. That at that very moment, there was a sinner crossing over from one world into the next. We're watching a birth experience right before our eyes as someone steps through the threshold and steps into the faith because that's exactly how we become a Christian. That's exactly how we become a Christ follower, to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our need, and to cry out to God for mercy, to invite God to work in our lives and to pour mercy upon us. This is a marvelous moment. This is a holy moment when discipleship for that tax gatherer is beginning. Now, I want you to notice the interaction between the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. I want you to notice how they related to each other during the story. Oh, wait a minute. They don't. That's my point. The Pharisee saw the sinner in need. He saw he was in church. But all the Pharisee could do was push off against that miserable failure of a human being and feel good about himself. When the Pharisee had the chance to reach out to someone who needed to enter into discipleship, the the tax gatherer was left to do it all by himself. The man who was the churchgoer had the opportunity to interact with with a newcomer, with a sinner, with an unchurched person, and he did not. I want to offer an analogy and see if I can make my point. We do not teach higher math to children who are preschoolers, kindergarten, first, second, third grade. When children are pre-K and K and first few grades, they learn to count, they learn to write their numbers, they learn to do basic addition and subtraction. Only later in their schooling do we introduce fractions, do we introduce decimals, do we introduce uh, math and trigonometry and algebra and calculus and all kinds of complex things. But we do not expect a child to do higher math. The tax gatherer was in church that day and he was not ready for the spiritual disciplines of fasting and tithing and all the things that the Pharisee was feeling so proud of. What the tax gatherer needed that day was to find the doorway to faith. He did not need higher math. He needed to learn how to count. And sometimes, sometimes, we church folk get so wrapped up in doing our church stuff that we forget that the unchurched just need to find the door in. They just need to find out how to count, 
How to cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. How to make a beginning. And the stuff we're answering is sometimes not the stuff they're asking. I uh, ran across in my reading recently this great uh, list of questions church visitors are not asking that churches are still trying to answer. It's, it's pretty humbling, and so uh, get ready to, to say ouch. Here are questions that church visitors are not asking, but churches are still trying to answer. And here's one of them. How soon can I get involved in your church committees? Will you please single me out in front of all the people during worship this morning? Will you please send me uh, send some callers by my house and interrupt me while I fix dinner? And here's the fourth one. Does this church have weekly meetings, rehearsals, and other activities that will consume most of our family's free time? Ouch. And then here's the zinger. I need more paperwork. Can you give me a folder filled with pamphlets and old newsletters and statements of faith? Double ouch. People aren't asking those questions. They want to know how to come into the faith. They want to know how to follow Jesus. They want to know how to connect with God. Those aren't bad. People just aren't ready for them. And so, to sort of distill down the further contrast between these two would-be disciples, I describe one of them as childish, and the other is childlike. First, the Pharisee is childish. He's childish because he's consumed with himself, his own comfort, his own self-congratulations, his own needs, and he's so consumed with himself, he doesn't see a person in need nearby. There's a lot of stuff being written. I challenge you to read some of the stuff that's being written today about discipleship and about following Jesus and about how churches are sometimes missing the boat. Mike Lucan has written a book, uh, Renovation of the Church, where he acknowledges when he first started waking up to discipleship and to the kingdom of God, he said, I became very, very disappointed with, quote, mature Christians who acted like spoiled children. He said, I was disappointed with the dog and pony show, the dog and pony show of large church ministry, I was tired of catering to Christians who needed their weekly fix of church, but who, can, who continued to go out and live based on their own wants and needs and desires rather than on following Jesus. Well, that's tough to hear. He became disappointed and disillusioned with church members who became focused on their weekly church fix and then went out with nothing changed, as if they were living for themselves rather than following Jesus. Do you think the Pharisee got it that coming to a building once a week or even once a day was not the equivalent of a vibrant relationship with God? Do you think the Pharisee got it that it was not all about him? Do you think we get it? Do we really get it? That coming to the building on Sunday doesn't make us a disciple, a follower, and that... that, uh, It's not all about us, that it's about sacrifice and following. Do we get that? On the other hand, the tax gatherer was not childish. He was childlike. 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's a child like? Inquisitive, open, trusting, not proud, but dependent, acknowledging dependence. A child is vulnerable. A child is able to acknowledge need. A a child is transparent. A child is just who he or she is. They, They don't put on airs. See, that's precisely why at the end of this story that Jesus told, Luke picks up the narrative and says, people were bringing children, infants, to Jesus. And the disciples were shooing them away. But Jesus said, no, no, let them come because this is precisely what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, if you don't become like a child, you cannot enter into the kingdom. It's not an accident that those two stories are put back to back. Jesus tells a story about a childlike person who's willing to say, God, have mercy on me, my broken, sinful life, and then to talk about infants and children, about dependence, not pride, about trust and transparency and vulnerability and openness. What's a child, what's an infant bring to a relationship? Achievement or success? A resume of accomplishments? No. What a child brings to a relationship is just that child's self. A child is beautiful simply in her own just being herself, in his own just being his glorious self. That's all that's all that child needs to bring. Henry Nowen, who did a lot of writing uh, about vulnerability, he, he authored that famous book, The Wounded Healer. He said that all my life, there have been two voices in my head. He said one voice is all about achievement and success. He said the other voice is about God's unconditional love and about how I don't have a single thing to prove. And he said, I can just tell you by which voice I listened to whether my life was rich and blessed or not. Success and achievement or unconditional love and nothing to prove. I have to tell you about uh, a little girl named Charity. This is a true story. One pastor shared this in his um, uh, memoir. Little girl, girl Charity, she's five years old. She is a bright, very verbal, very, very uh, articulate, able to talk about what she's feeling and experiencing and just so open. Well, Charity had been visited by her, uh, one of her grandmothers for an extended period of time. Charity lived with her parents, but the grandmother came to visit, had a wonderful time. But grandma number one was, uh, this grandma who had visited was kind of... um, took her religion very seriously, Uh, a little bit too seriously, sort of over the top, Uh, one might say a little bit rigid, and Charity didn't say anything. She loved her grandma, and they had a great time, but then that grandma left, and a short time later, grandma number two came for a visit. On the very first morning of grandma number two's visit, at five in the morning, Charity crawls into bed with grandma number two and snuggles up against her and said, now, grandma... Let's don't have any God talk while you're here this week, okay? I know God is everywhere, 
So let's just get on with life. I like that. Let's don't have any God talk. I know God's everywhere, so let's just get on with life. Do you hear how this five-year-old charity basically identified the two, the two men in Jesus' story? One full of God talk, the other ready to do real business like a child in openness with the living God. And do you hear God saying to us, let's stop the games, let's be the church, let's be followers of Jesus and grow followers of Jesus. Not church for church's sake, but church for Jesus' sake. Not church for church's sake, but church for the sake of of, of recruiting and growing followers of Jesus. And let's just get on with life. Let's follow Jesus. Let's pray together.